Thanks for sharing that. Well, guys, we are in Acts chapter 10. We're finishing up chapter 10 today. And it really is an amazing story. We've been here for a little while with Cornelius. And Cornelius is a, a very unique guy in the sense that he was a Roman centurion stationed in Caesarea. Roman centurions are taught, well, first of all, to be a Roman centurion, you have to be a Roman soldier first. To be a Roman soldier uh, in Italy, more than likely you were loyal to the emperor. And that means you would have worshipped gods, the Greek gods that all Romans worship, but most importantly, you would have believed that the emperor himself was God. The emperor claimed to be God. And so, here's a guy who grew up being taught that the person that was over his government was God, was a God. He had other gods that he prayed to, but none of them would have resembled Jesus Christ or the God of all creation. So it really is a miracle what God did. He brought Cornelius from Italy to Caesarea. And then he brought the leader of the Jesus movement and Peter to his house to get him the gospel. So you guys who go, what about the people over in Africa that have never heard? Or what about the people in India that have never heard? If there is somebody that will respond to the message, guess what? God will figure out a way to get somebody to him. He will. And Cornelius is a great example of that. And that was a big deal. You know why it was a big deal? Because he was a Gentile. You, you're basically, to the Jews, there were three classes of people. There were Jews, there were Samaritans, and then there was Gentiles. The Samaritans were kind of a half-breed. They were people who were Jewish in heritage, but they had joined themselves with Babylonian people. I'm sorry, Assyrian people. Not Babylon, but Assyrians. And they had basically began to worship idols. They had created, they were more part of the northern kingdom than the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom never had a good king, even though they had good people up there at times. But Samaria was the capital, and Samaria was where the people would go to worship these idols. And so, in the Jewish mind, the only difference between Samaritans and Gentiles as Samaritans were circumcised. So that made them a little better in their mind. But for the Gentile, these were uncircumcised pagans. And nobody in their right mind would have ever believed God would bring them into the body of Christ. And this was even after Jesus was on the earth. This is even after Peter had preached. This is when they've got 5,000 plus believers who were Jewish, but there was a sect within those believers that said, well, if you really want to follow the Messiah, you've got to be circumcised. That's what they said. They believed that. Peter probably believed that. It took three visions from God, three visions to convince him to go from Joppa to Cornelius' house. Three times he had to see this vision. And God did that for a reason. And so as we've been going through this whole um, story that Luke is unfolding, it's, it's history. It's God's story. But
But as he's been unfolding, he's taken us on a progression. And we saw in Acts 1.8, what did he say? You will be my witnesses. And where? Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The Gentiles. It was always part of God's plan. But the Jews were supposed to be the vehicle that the Gospel would go forth with. But instead of being a channel, they thought they were a reservoir. They thought it was just about them. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches that we see 3,000 people come into the kingdom. We see the Holy Spirit poured out. We see them speaking in tongues as a group, not individually, but as a group. They're proclaiming these things about God in other tongues, which remember we said was a sign of what? Judgment. And the prophets, they had talked about that. And then in Acts 4, he preaches again. More people come into the kingdom. We see the church growing. Acts chapter 8, Samaritans are brought into the kingdom. And we see the first false convert really with um, Simon the Magician. You could argue that Judas was a false convert, but Judas, no, no disciple had the Holy Spirit indwell them until after what? Pentecost. So the disciples were not filled with the Holy Spirit continually before Pentecost. They were temporarily enabled to do some things, just like in the Old Testament, but there was no indwelling Spirit in them. But at Samaria, we see Simon the magician who heard the Gospel. He made a profession of faith. He was even baptized, but he was not a true believer. He was a false convert. But there were many who were true converts, and what happened? Peter went and authenticated that they were, and now the Samaritans are welcome in. But then, Peter, we see Saul. Luke kind of goes into the story of Saul. Why? Because who is the greatest missionary to the Gentiles? Saul. Saul. So Luke introduces us to him, but then he talks about how the Gentiles are brought in. And isn't it interesting that Saul is not the one that brings Cornelius in. Philip isn't the one who brings Cornelius in. It has to be Peter. Why? It's Peter because God's doing a work in his leader as much as he's doing a work in Cornelius. You guys who've never been down to the north side to do anything down there, everybody who's been will tell you God does more in your heart when you go down there than the people you actually minister to most of the time. Because He's working on all of us. You never stop getting worked on this side of heaven. And so, as we see Him go into Cornelius, He's got Cornelius over here, Peter over here. And for those who weren't here, Peter's in Joppa, which by the way is where Jonah was when he tried to run away from the Lord. And Jonah had been tasked to do what? To preach to Gentiles. See, nothing's coincidental in the Scriptures. Everything, God is providential in how He's laying it out. And so He brings Peter to Cornelius' house. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago, how He gave them both the vision. And last week, we saw the elements of the Gospel that Peter presented in Acts 34-43. And we saw it starts with God. It always starts with God. Now, in our modern evangelism, we've started a lot of times with the listener. We start thinking about them. In fact, they drive the conversation instead of being driven by God. 
because we've made it. I tell you, uh, there's a guy named uh, Dick Halverson that used to be the he's he's passed away, but he used to be the chaplain to the Senate, and he made this statement a long time ago, and it's always stuck with me. He said, "What started in Jerusalem as a relationship went to Greece and became an idea, went to Rome and became an institution." came to America and became an enterprise. Because we've mass-produced gospel presentations in the form of tracts. Nothing wrong with tracts, but a lot of times these tracts that we use focus more on the person reading than on the God who created the world. You see, it has to start with God, and we talked about that last week. It starts with God. God created you and me for a relationship. But because of our rebellion, which has nothing to do with your benefits, it starts with telling people the bad news. Why would anybody go in for uh, something painful in treatment if they didn't think they needed it? And so we offer them a cure that they go, I don't really need that cure. I, and I don't want it. I mean, like, I'm pretty good. In fact, I've shared the gospel with people before and they've gone, you know, I'm doing all right in my life. Really? Really? You're thinking that you're doing okay and you're not in relationship with the one true living God and you're in danger of eternal punishment forever and ever? No help, no hope? Like when you die, you will be separated from anything good, positive, comforting, peace, and you're okay with that? Okay. But that's where people are. But we start with that, hey, you need to do this. And a lot of people just think it's a check in the box. But it starts with God. And we saw last week also that God, and this is what Peter presented, God's no respecter of persons. He doesn't show any partiality. Everybody is held to an objective standard. It's not Chuck's standard. It's not Jeff's standard. It's not my standard. It's not your pastor's standard. It is God's standard. And if you want to see what it is, look at Jesus. Jesus is the picture of how we're supposed to live our life. He's the perfect model of what it looks like to be in right relationship with God 24-7. Can you do that? Can we do that? No. We can't. So what does that show us? It shows us a need. We have a need. We have a need because we can't do what God asks us to do. So we need God's mercy. We need His forgiveness. And so what Peter does next is he presents Jesus of Nazareth as the human Jesus, and he also presents Jesus of Nazareth as the divine Messiah. He's both 100% God, 100% man. And he's not half and half. He's 100% both. He put aside his God authority and God power to walk as a human when he was on the earth. He pre-existed his human condition. He was around at the beginning, but he came to earth in the form of human and set aside his God power so that he could walk the earth as a human and he could be the sacrifice for our sin. And Peter lays that out. And you know, the thing about it is we saw last week that when he said to Cornelius, you yourself know the story. There was an assumption there that Cornelius was already familiar with it. Why? Because it had been about eight or ten years since Jesus had been crucified. He would have been well aware of it. 
But he presented him, but then he focused on the resurrection. Because that's a hinge point of the gospel. And so he talked about Jesus being our curse. He died on a tree. And then he was resurrected. And he was seen by all that God appointed to see him. Those that God chose who were his witnesses. And we saw finally that true conversion, this this gospel always results in ambassadors being formed who will go tell other people that Jesus is the judge He's the Redeemer, and He's King. And that's what we saw last week. Well, Peter's preaching this message to Cornelius. He's sharing this with his friends and family. And you know what? Right in the middle of his message, the Holy Spirit interrupts him. He just... I mean, Peter's preaching. And it says in the text today, while he was still speaking... The Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius. Whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't we have to get Cornelius to pray some kind of prayer? I mean, don't we got to get him to say he repents and he, you know, he's sorry for his sin? And No. No, we don't. What is the only requirement necessary for the Holy Spirit to come into you and you be born again? There's one requirement. You believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord. You believe in Him. That's it. You don't have to say a fancy prayer. You don't have to get out on your knees, although many people do. There's nothing wrong with it. But you don't have to do anything but believe. That's, that is the normative time when the Holy Spirit comes in and changes people. And according to what Jesus said in John 3, they're born again, like He told Nicodemus. You have this new birth inside of you. Something inside of you goes, okay, I'm connected with the one true living God now and I get it. I'm a baby, but I get it. I have connection. There's a lot of people that don't have that, that, that have something up here but they never have the connection with the one true living God. And what we see today in this text, it's only five verses, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, is three things that happen at the moment of salvation that God's revealing to us. First of all, God's provision of the indwelling Spirit. At the moment of salvation is when it comes. It's not after It's not a month after. It's not when you do these things and get them right. At the moment of belief, the indwelling Holy Spirit is given to you by God. We see that. Second, we see that we have a privilege, our privilege, to make a public confession of our love and loyalty for Jesus. You have an opportunity to to make a public confession of your love and loyalty for Jesus. It's a privilege to do that. And we see that in the text. Peter says, hey, what's keeping them from the water, the baptism? Nothing. And he commanded them to be baptized. The eunuch on the road. Remember when the eunuch was was talking with Philip? He goes, hey, there's water. What keeps me from being baptized? That's a public confession of faith that he wants. We don't do that. Now you have to go to discipleship classes. You got to go to baptism classes. You know, you got to have all these things in order. Oh, and now you're ready to be baptized. No. 
If somebody makes a profession of faith, if they're a believer, if they believe, baptize them. I was, I was doing an outreach on the beach years ago out at Pontevedra Beach. And I gave a gospel presentation and I was baptizing a few people who had pre-arranged to be baptized. They had not been baptized. And I said, is there anybody else that today believed and wants to be baptized? And this guy had a jeans and coat on. And he said, I do, I do. And he's weeping. And I said, well, come on in. And so he took his coat off, walked in in his jeans and just got dunked. Didn't go to a class. Didn't do anything. But he, he knew something had happened inside of him. And he was obedient and wanted to make a public confession. We see that in the text. And finally, we see a passion for fellowship with other believers, the church. If you are a believer, you've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there is going to be an inner desire given by the Spirit to connect with other believers. If you know somebody that says they're a believer and they go, I don't want to be around other believers, there's something wrong with them. At best case, they're spiritually sick. Okay? Best case. Worst case, they're spiritually dead. We see that in Cornelius. And why is that important for Cornelius here? Because Cornelius is a centurion in the Roman army tasked to protect the governor of that area. And who is one of the leaders of a movement that has been seen as an insurrectionist movement, Peter. And he's going, I want to hang around this guy. I want to be around him. That's a, that's a problem in the culture, not a problem in the church. Should be happening all the time, doesn't. I meet people all the time. Ah, you know what? I just worship Jesus out on my lake. I just get in a boat and have a beer and me and Jesus, we just talk. Because He's your Jesus, not the biblical Jesus. It's the Jesus you created. Because the biblical Jesus, what says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together in, your, in His Word. And we see a desire here to do that. So let's read the text. We're going to come back and look at each one of these. We're going to talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit because there's a lot of misinformation about the Holy Spirit out there. And I realize even in a group like this, there you may come from a background that you have been taught things that may not be biblically true. And I would just ask you to have an open mind to think about the Bible in context to what's going on instead of maybe tradition. Because I was taught things incorrectly from a bad theological perspective. Not by people who were evil. They just were misguided. And so... Let's look at this starting in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the Word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the, gifts, the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. That word means to praise or worship. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? 
and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. They wanted him to stay there. They wanted fellowship. They wanted to learn more. They wanted to interact more. Hey, Doug. Yes, sir. We talked about speaking in tongues before, right? Yes, sir. Is, is there like a, a difference between when people speak tongues in the Old versus the New Testament? Or what's the deal? Now, this, the speaking in tongues referred to here, that word means languages. It's a language that's unknown to the speaker. So it's not a learned language. So it's not gibberish. It's not some private prayer language. It is a known language like Spanish or French. It would be like me speaking French. I've never taken a French lesson in my life. I couldn't tell you any word in French. And if I just started speaking praise God in French and I started sharing the gospel in French, that's what it would be like. It's not just a made-up language. Okay? And so, it's a good question. So let's look at these things. God's provision of the indwelling spirit. When did it come? Did Cornelius have to do anything for it to happen? In fact, Peter wasn't even ready for it to happen. It says while he was still speaking. I think it's funny that if you look in the Bible, Peter is up on the mountain and he's trying to talk about building tents and God interrupted him there and said, hey, this is my son. Listen to him. Right? Uh, and now here, the Holy Spirit's interrupting him and telling him, okay, Peter, you've spoken enough. I'm going to start working right now. And he comes in, and what he does, he inhabits Cornelius and his family and friends that are there, and they just start praising God in these known languages, but that were unknown to them. Now, you go, wow. Wow. Why would that be important for Peter? Because what happened on Pentecost? They did that. It was the exact experience that they had when the Holy Spirit came on them. So because the exact thing happened, they recognized it and they go, wow. In fact, he says in the text, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? It was the exact same way. So the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, was given by God without request. And there's, there's actually churches and whole denominations that teach that you can believe in Jesus and then subsequent to that later, you will get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But you have to pray for it. And it has to be the right timing. And that's not true. The Holy Spirit comes instantaneously at the moment of true belief. As soon as you believe in Jesus, not in the facts about Jesus, not in a church, but in Jesus, when there's true belief in Jesus as Messiah, the Holy Spirit comes and changes you on the inside out because the Holy Spirit is preparing you for that moment. And what that does is, first of all, it gives you power. Remember what Acts 1.8 says? It says, you will receive what? Power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You will receive power, so the Holy Spirit brings power. It also brings comfort. It brings, he, he's an advocate, he's with us. In John 14, 
Jesus says he, I, he's the comforter. He is going to come. He's going to be your advocate. But it also brings eternal security to your mind. Ephesians 1, at the end there, verse 13 and 14, says that you have been marked with the Spirit. That He will, it's like a deposit. The Holy Spirit is like a down payment or a deposit, like an engagement ring, that when you get the Holy Spirit, you know you're His. You know, you just know that you know that you know that you're His. Like it says in John 5. And so, when did this all happen? How do we know this? Well, if you go back to the book of Ezekiel, verse 36, listen to what God says through the prophet Ezekiel to his people about this. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will turn your, start of, or your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27. So when God says, I will put it in my heart, does it list any kind of requirements on our part? Is there any demands that we have to meet before that happens? It, it says He does it. He does it. It's a gift. And it comes with belief. True belief. And we're going to see the difference between belief with faith and belief without faith in a minute. But listen to what Jesus said in John 14. He says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see Him or know Him, you know Him because for He dwells with you and will be in you. So who's He talking about there? Say again? No, no, no. He says you know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit dwell with them now when He's speaking that in John 14? It's in Jesus. Right? Jesus is there and He is anointed with the Spirit. You know how I know that? Because we read it last week. Verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit was with Jesus on earth, and now He's going to be in the disciples now that He's gone. Yeah. So none of the other ones, the Spirit wasn't in any other ones when they wasn't baptized? The, the, the Spirit did not come until Jesus was crucified. Jesus had to be crucified on the cross before the Spirit could inhabit eternally another human being. The Spirit would come for bits for the Spirit would come upon somebody just for a moment. But until Jesus died on the cross, we couldn't be the temple to hold the Spirit. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? Yeah. It makes perfect sense. However, <clears throat> when David prays, do not take your Spirit from me, when he's praying for forgiveness, 
I mean, and, and Saul had the Holy Spirit take room. It, it didn't come into them in, in quick bits and pieces. I mean, I guess it did, but David had the Holy Spirit, or at least I've always met him. David had the Spirit at times, but he didn't have the Spirit inhabit him. Nobody prior to okay. the cross had the Spirit inhabit them for any extended periods of time. Nobody did. Uh, the, the, the Spirit would come on them for certain acts to do certain things, uh, but the Spirit was not given. Jesus said, go wait. And, and you, if you go back and you look at all His teachings, even especially go to the book of John, John 14, 15, 16, when He's talking there, He talks about how He has to go away for the Spirit to come. And so even though the Spirit would come on somebody, God would take it away like He did Saul and He gave him an evil spirit, the Spirit would only come temporarily to enable them to do things. Okay? So, He says, and I want to go back to verse 16 and 17 of John 14. He says, You know Him for He dwells with you. He's with me. And He's going to be in you. Jesus is saying then the Spirit's going to come. John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and He cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, here's the word, believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, that's important, out of his heart will flow living water. Whoever believes in Me. So the Scripture proclaims, when you believe in Jesus, out of you is going to flow living water. Now this He said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. If you come to Him, the Spirit's going to go through you. If you believe in Him, the Spirit is going to give you new life, just like He says in John 3, and you're going to become a channel of blessing. Let me picture it for you this way. I've shared this before. You know those landscape fountains you see? you got a big bowl, then a smaller bowl, then a smaller bowl, and then a small bowl up top, and then there's a fountain, right? Jesus is the fountain. We're the top bowl. The next bowl is our family and, and, and friends. The next bowl is people we don't even know yet that we haven't met, but we may come into contact with. If we're not drinking deeply from Jesus every day, we're not drinking from Him, then we're going to be dry in that top bowl. There's things that can kind of plug up the water supply a little bit that keeps us from being overflowing to other people. In fact, evangelism is nothing more than an overflow of our own love relationship with God. I mean, Cornelius went and told people to come here how to be saved. He didn't even have the Spirit in him yet. But he was already excited about what God was doing, and in faith he invited these people to come in there and hear what Peter said. The disciples could do nothing until the Holy Spirit came. Really. If you go back and you look at their life when they walked with Jesus, how many times were they messing up? I mean, how many times were they missing the boat, literally? How many times, hey, we're going to die. We're going to die in here. Don't you care? Where's your faith, guys? Come on. The God of all creation's in the boat with you. 
What are we going to do? How are you going to feed everybody? Uh, man, Lord, there ain't enough money anywhere to feed all these people. Really? You got the God of creation asking that question. Wrong answer. The right answer would have been, you can do it, Lord. Whatever you tell us to do, we'll do. But they didn't have the Holy Spirit in them. The Spirit hadn't been given yet. They were with the Spirit as Jesus was walking with them. But they didn't have it inside them, guys. The Holy Spirit comes with believing. And this is in effect for Cornelius and the Gentiles. This is the Pentecost for them. It's their Pentecost. The Holy Spirit just comes on them. And we see what Peter says in verse 47. He says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Spirit? Why would he even say that question? Why would he even ask that? Yeah, because there were six other Jewish people there who were believers who were thinking, man, I don't know if we should baptize these guys. That's why he said it. Because they're not, they're not circumcised. These are Gentiles. This guy's a Roman. And notice what he does. He gives them the privilege of a public confession to be baptized. Do you think there was a cost involved for Cornelius to allow himself to be baptized? You betcha. You betcha. Same way there would be if you were in Egypt. If you were over in Egypt, Andrew, and you made a profession of faith, let's say you met me, I got off the airplane, started talking to you, and you go, I tell you the Gospel, so we have a meeting, you came to it, and you go, I'm in, I believe in Jesus. Okay, we're doing a baptism tomorrow out behind Joe's house out there. Oh, i got to get baptized? I don't know about getting baptized. Really? You're not willing to make a public profession? Oh, no, man. I could get killed for doing that. Listen. If you're a believer and you don't get baptized, you're walking in disobedience because Jesus commanded. He commanded what? Go into all the world and what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Teaching them all that I've commanded. The baptism is a public profession of faith that has been associated with every believer going all the way back to the disciples when they walked with Jesus. Being baptized is an outward display of what God has done on the inside and a profession saying, I'm with Jesus and I want the world to know. That's why you get baptized. The baptism itself isn't magical. It doesn't do anything. You're just being obedient, showing the world what's already happened on the inside. It's a public confession. Because there's two types of people that hear the message and believe. There's an intellectual belief without faith and there's a true belief with faith. Simon the magician in Acts 8 was a belief without hearing. He, I mean, without faith. He was a belief. He wanted Jesus as a genie. Jesus as a, his ATM machine. Jesus who would do what he wanted him to do. Cornelius said, I'm in. This is the real deal. I'm sending my most loyal soldier to go with these two servants. And I'm bringing the leader 
of the way back to my house to tell me how to be saved, how to be in the right relationship with God. He took a risk doing that. And then the guy comes there, preaches. The Holy Spirit falls on him. He says, now you've got to get baptized. Okay, I'm in. And he gets baptized at the risk of his life and that of his family. Listen, in Galatians 3.2, it says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? With faith. To hear without faith is to be like Simon the Magician. You don't really believe. And see, a lot of people have the faith, they put their faith in what Jesus did, but not in Him. They believe in His acts, like they believe in George Washington being President of the United States. It's not just believing in what He did. You've got to believe in Him. He's alive. He rose from the dead. He lives today. He intercedes for us at the, hand, the right hand of the Father. And He's our King. And He's our Redeemer and our Judge. Hebrews 4.2 says, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Remember Hebrews 2 was a warning. It was one of five warnings in Hebrews to people who heard the Gospel but who believed not with faith. They didn't hear with faith. They just heard with their head. Baptism is a visible display of new life in Christ. It symbolizes the old you dying and the new you living. Christ living in you. And that's what they did. He says, hey, can anyone stop these people from being baptized? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. What's so great about that? Peter was being led by the Spirit, obviously, because he said... You six, baptize them. Because had he not got them to baptize them, guess what? When he got back to Jerusalem, it was all the Peter show. This is Peter's fault. Peter did this. He brought them in. He got these guys some buy-in because they participated in it. They baptized them. Then when they go back, they all were witnesses of what happened. And we, we see that in Acts 11 when he goes back and reports to the church. So we see, first of all, God giving the Holy Spirit. Second, you have this opportunity to make a public confession of love and loyalty. And finally, we see a passion for fellowship with other believers, the church. You know, this is important. It says, then they asked him to remain for some days, talking about Peter. Why did they want him there? Why would they want Peter to be there? Yeah, they got questions. They want to grow. They want a fellowship. Have you ever let me have you ever been to another country where there was nobody who spoke English? Yeah. And then you meet somebody who speaks English and all you want to do is hang around them. <laughs> Why is that? There's a commonness there. There's a connection there. And so they wanted to grow that connection with Peter. They wanted to learn. Listen, this is important, guys. You have Jew, Samaritan, and Gentile is one church. In Acts 11, when Peter's testifying to the church, he's saying, listen, guys, the Holy Spirit fell on them just like us. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, 
slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. They recognized there was a common link that superseded every other link in their life. Even for Cornelius, the link to the military is a centurion, which was huge. That's big. Is that the greatest link in your life? You know, when Jesus was approached and he said, your sisters, your brothers, and your mom are outside, he said, these are my sisters, my brothers, and my mom, whoever does the will of God. He was saying that the connection with God is your overarching loyalty. We don't always live that way in the church. We don't always live that way in the West. But I tell you what, from my travels to India, my travels to Africa, my travels to Asia, the places I've been where I've visited the church and I witnessed the church there, those people view those bonds stronger than any other bond they have. The bond with other believers. It's the absolute strongest bond they have on earth. Most of the places the reason is because they're persecuted. For us, it's a, it's a casual acquaintance. It's a, you know, take it or leave it relationship. For them, it's vital. It's absolutely vital that they encourage one another. So they have a passion for fellowship with other believers. So we see these three things at the moment of salvation demonstrated clearly in Cornelius. The indwelling spirit given, not because he requested. And by the way, just so you know, nowhere in the New Testament is tongue speaking ever a single seeker event? Nowhere. Nowhere. It's always a group conversion kind of thing where a group does it and it's used to authenticate that these people really had the same Holy Spirit given that was given at Pentecost. But nowhere is it a single speaker event. And there's been a lot of churches that have taught, well, you got to, I've had people tell me, well, you just got to prime the pump a little bit. You know, you got to start saying these words. And if you say these words long enough, the Spirit will just come in. You don't have to teach people gifts of the Spirit. A gift of the Spirit is from God. Nobody had to teach Cornelius how to speak in an unknown language. God gave him the ability supernaturally. And so there's a lot of bad teaching out there. There's a, there's a good book by John MacArthur called Strange Fire. He gives a lot of history of how people teaching uh, about tongues and other things have gone off the rails a little bit, and it's been around a long time. It's gone back to the early church where there were people that were spreading some of those things back then. It's called Strange Fire. It's a good book. Don't agree with everything in there, but his history is really good that he lays out in there. Um, and I, I really think he does a good job overall. So, you know, that's the one thing about the gospel and about the Bible. None of us have a handle on the truth. We're all just trying to find out what the truth is. And there, there's going to be things that I get to heaven and I go, wow, I really messed that up, Lord. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I am so sorry because I thought this and it was this. But... We do our best to understand in context, and I promise you guys, I do my very best to make sure that when I'm teaching you, I'm looking at things from a contextual point of view. And, and that's all I can ask for anybody. And so I'm, sit, I'm happy to talk with anybody about any of these issues or anything that comes up, 
But this is my authority. So if you want to disagree or you want to have a discussion, we've got to go to the text and see what the text says in context. So um, we can pray and we can open it up for some comments afterwards. Danny, will you close in prayer and then we'll, we'll open it up sure. for comments.